Hi, my name is Kristen Donnelly, and I'm a cookbook author and copywriter who became an enthusiastic student of plants after co-writing a book about vegetables. I started this podcast so I could get down and dirty with other plant obsessives and bring you along for the ride. My guests and I talk gardening, herbalism, plant-based eating, ecological landscaping, and houseplant care. Essentially, all the ways plants can bring us happier, healthier lives. So grab a cup of tea or your watering can and get ready to dig in. This is the Plant Out Loud podcast. Today, my guest is Farmer Lee Jones of the Chef's Garden, a family-owned vegetable farm in Ohio near the shores of Lake Erie. In 2011, he was honored with the James Beard Foundation's Award for Who's Who and Food and Beverage, and he speaks across the country about food and agriculture. The Chef's Garden is a longtime innovator and a sort of Willy Wonka factory for vegetables. Until recently, the Chef's Garden sold most of their vegetables to restaurants only, but now they ship nationwide. For the past few years, I've had the honor and privilege to work with Farmer Lee on his book called The Chef's Garden. It's a book that serves as a guide to vegetables while telling so many incredible stories from the farm. During the process, Farmer made my job quite easy since he's one of the best storytellers I've ever met. I'm delighted to have him here so he can share some of his stories with you. Farmer, thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be part of your new podcast. (laughs) Thanks. I'm excited to have you as one of my first guests. Um, So we're in a moment when the word pivot has been used constantly for the past year. And I know your family knows a lot about pivots and experiencing hard times. Um, The chef's garden was basically one big pivot for your family farm. And because of COVID-19, you've had to make another drastic pivot. And I'd love to talk about that. Can you take us back to the beginning? I ran across this seven amazing life lessons of a plant. And I think that they kind of tie into the continuous pivot that we all make. And, you know, I'm pretty intimately and passionate, uh, intimate about plants and growing, but seven amazing life lessons. Plants don't set limitations for themselves. A plant wants to grow as much as it possibly can. Plants allow their struggles to make them stronger. Plants turn towards the sun. Plants are adaptable. Plants add value to other people's lives. Plants are happy being themselves. And, and plants, plants move at their own pace, the last one. And I think some things maybe move our pace along. But when you think about those, I mean, it's so much like life. I mean, yeah, going kind of now going back, if we put that in perspective and we think about those, I don't know who the author of that is. It wasn't mine, but it's, it's resonated with me. I mean, how far back to the beginning do you want to go? I mean, you know, um, we're in an amazing microclimate, Kristen, as you know, right along Lake Erie. It's a microclimate. Um, In fact, it was huge in wine grapes, even before California, before Napa Valley. If you think about Lake Erie, Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. What does that mean? Well, it means it's the warmest. And so late in the fall, when that water temperature is warm, it allows us to extend our season. It allows those plants to slowly uh, build up some resistance to the cold temperature. And it also allows um, not only for an extended season, but for some really resilient crops that thrive in the cooler temperatures. You know, there were over 330 vegetable growers in this county, and it looks like it peaked in about 1930. And my father went to work for a vegetable grower, a very progressive vegetable grower in the early 50s. And his name was Charles Nichols. And as you know, it's kind of hard for us to think about it because you can 
go from here to New York in eight hours or from here to Chicago in four and a half hours. A beautiful freeway that we just take for granted that we get on. But if you go back into the 40s and the 50s, roads and refrigeration were just starting to develop to the point where outside competition really was a factor. But before that, you know, those farmers, you have this amazing microclimate. You have 330 vegetable growers. You have Cleveland an hour away, Toledo an hour away, Columbus two hours, Pittsburgh three and a half hours away, Cincinnati four hours. You have all these large metropolitan areas with large populations, and then this beautiful growing environment right in the middle of that. And so those farmers did quite well. But as roads and refrigeration continued to improve and then chain grocery stores came into play, it made it much more competitive for small family farms. A farm was probably at the, on the large side, 100 acres, because that's about what one family could manage. But Mr. Nichols could kind of see that ultimately to be able to compete, they were going to have to have much broader scale. And a lot of the farms didn't have the capability or the desire to be able to have 1,200 or 1,500 or 2,000 acres to compete on a larger scale. So he he invested in hydrocooling, packaging, palletizing, sorting, grading, waxing, setup. And my dad went to work for him and Mr. Nichols was quite successful. He was a savvy businessman and he was a good farmer. And so he worked cooperatively with all of these other growers in the community and they brought enough product in to be able to win. I don't know if you remember, probably a lot of listeners probably don't, but A&P, it was the Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company. It was a successful chain back in the day. And that was one of the main customers. And I don't know, I don't even recall, but I think it was somewhere near like 140 stores. But 140 stores, if you start thinking about doing the math on that, when an A&P buyer would call, he wasn't going to call 100 different farmers that had 100 acres. He wanted to call one person, one place, and he could get it palletized, hydrocooled. And so they worked cooperatively and they were able to, to handle volumes of large truckloads. So it's really kind of the same experience that we're experiencing today with Walmart. They're able to buy in much larger volume. And in many cases, they can sell it cheaper than somebody could go and buy individually from one. My dad learned a lot from him. And ultimately, Mr. Nichols had no sons and he had no daughters that were interested in farming. And my dad ended up buying that farm. And the, the number of family-owned farms continued to diminish. And so my dad continued to expand his acreage. And when I was 15 or 16 years old, my dad was farming 12, 1,200 to 1,500 acres of fresh market vegetables. And we were shipping them to chain grocery stores every place east of Mississippi River. My dad trained at Ohio State. The messaging there was to be able to reduce costs, um, use chemicals to help become more efficient and to grow more volume more efficiently. And if you follow the money, the pharmaceutical companies and the chemical companies were the companies that were making money. Yeah. And so they were going to do something to help the farmers by allowing them to be more efficient. So, you know, the model that exists today for agriculture is, is to produce as many tons per acre as possible and keep the costs as low as possible. And if you can do that, you can stay in business. Um, it's not measured on the integrity of the plant. For several years, that worked. It's hard for us, again, to imagine, just like roads and refrigeration, not being good enough to ship product back in the 40s or the 50s. But um, interest rates um, hit 21% in the late yeah. 70s, early 80s. Today, it's you can borrow imagine. money. Yeah. Today, you can borrow money for like 2.75 or 3%. Yeah. No, it, it, it is. And, you know, so the economy was completely turned upside down and inflation was out of control. My dad was borrowing money at 21%. They had a very devastating hailstorm. As just a normal person 
a hailstorm is just kind of like another bad day of bad weather. But for a farmer, you know, if it's the wrong hail at the wrong time, it can wipe the crops out. Well, mm -hmm. this was the wrong hail at the wrong time. And my dad's 1,500 acres was not all in one spot. It was not contiguous. When a farmer would go out of business, my dad would be able to rent that farm from them. So he had farms kind of spread out all over Erie County. And a lot of times we can drive into a rain or drive out of a rain. And it's like, oh my gosh, I was just in pouring down rain. And then you drive right through. And so a hailstorm or rain sometimes would hit one farm, but not another. Well, mm -hmm. this one was so widespread, it hit every farm that he had. And if you can imagine, if your listeners can imagine, holding a head of cabbage in your hand, having a hammer and not hitting it hard, but just for about 30 seconds, just taking that hammer and just coming down and just hitting on it for about 30 seconds. It was literally like fields of coleslaw. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I'm sure that the odor of that on day one wasn't bad, but by day three with some heat, it was, you know, what bad cabbage smells like. Yeah. Um, but it was also a, a very sickening it was a smell of death because it was the end of our farm and it it broke their back between 21% interest rates and a hailstorm. But you know, it, if we go back to the plants and we think about those struggles and our life and pivots, it was time. And I think that as devastating as it was, and I mean, everything was lost. Um, there was a farm auction um, at 19 years old. I stood with my mom and dad, my brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, everybody that was there to celebrate our failure. And they auctioned everything off right down to my mother's car in our house. And, you know, we literally crawled away. And I'm not trying to paint any rags to riches story because that it is not. But it was a pivot point for us. And it, and it allowed us to rethink what are we doing and the way that we were farming, where we were trying to control diseases and insects through chemical. And if it didn't work, it's just like the scenario that we're in today as human beings. You know, the penicillin was used so much that now it's it's becoming ineffective. So they've got to increase the doses or they've got to give you a stronger dose of something else. And the same thing happens with the chemicals because the, the plants and the insects are survivors and they built up resistances. And yeah. so then you got to put more on and heavier. And we're not thinking about the end result of what's this doing to us. We believe that there's a direct correlation between the way that we're farming chemically and synthetically and the health or the lack thereof of our nation. So by losing the farm, kind of going back to old agricultural books, my dad thinking of his early time on a farm of 100 acre farms rotating, truly rotating. Now farms today will say, yes, they rotate. And I'm not trying to throw other farms under the bus. It's not about that. They're trying to exist within the model that, that they're asked to work under right now, which is to keep costs low, produce high tonnage of product. But if you thought about a 100-acre farm, 30 acres or a third of it was in production to take to market, a third was sitting fallow, another third was growing plants to feed the animals, and they rotated. And every year, some of that land was resting. You can go back to biblical times, uh, harvest fruit for six years on the seventh year, let the fruit fall to the ground, and they had a, a bountiful harvest on the eighth year. And so... As devastating as it was, it gave us a chance for pause mm -hmm. to say, what the hell are we doing? And so going back to old agricultural books, 100, 150, 200 years ago, if you think about that, pre-chemical, pre-synthetic fertilizer, growing and rebuilding the soil, ultimately everything comes back to the health and well-being of the soil. All life comes from healthy soil and all good life. And so it set us on a, a, a pivot point. And really began to look at the way we were building the, the health of the soil. We have a tagline, healthy soil, 
healthy vegetables, healthy people, healthy environment. We've added one since we've since I've talked to you last. I was going to say I don't remember healthy environment, but that makes and, sense. And it's and as you know, it's been a crucial part of how we think is the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but we thought that we should add that to our healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people, healthy. So it really did set us on another course. And we met a chef, a woman in Cleveland at a farmer's market, because we started back over at farmer's markets, because it was one of the few ways that we thought that we could start over, because there was no money. Obviously, no banks were giving us any money because our credit was shot. And we started back over going to farmer's markets. We met a, a woman who was trained in Europe, who really had a good understanding, way better understanding than we did. And she said, grow for the quality, grow for the integrity of the plant, grow without chemicals, grow for the flavor, do it the right way. And I believe that there would be enough chefs that would support that and desperate for a way to survive in agriculture. And you've got to keep in mind, farmers markets were at a historic low during that 70s and 80s period. You know, my mother's generation, mom's going to be 80 in September, had absolutely no interest in doing what her mother did which was, and if you kind of go back to the European people, they love the farmers markets because, you know, you go to, you go every day and you get your meat and you get your bread and you get your vegetables. And then the next day you go and do it again. It had existed here, but we lost our way. And, you know, the farmers markets were a historic low. Here's Iris Balin, trained in Europe, looking for this quality product, grown for the integrity, grown for the flavor, grown without chemical, do it the right way and chefs will support it. And Again, so desperate for a way to survive in agriculture, we grabbed on around both of her ankles and we wouldn't let go. And we said, teach us. And and that she did. And so now ramp up, continually looking for ways to, to grow for the flavor and the integrity of the product, developing relationships with chefs all over the United States, some internationally, and really the best chefs in the world. Things change. Farm markets come back into vogue because we recognize as a society that we've allowed a disconnect. We see a 3,000% increase in all these diseases. And we're saying we've got to get control of our food system again. You know, sometimes progress isn't progress mm-hmm. and less is more. And so, you know, in our farm is kind of that unique diversity of in many ways. And my dad had a quote that he said that in many ways, the only thing we're trying to do is get as good as the growers were 100 years ago. Yeah, I love you know, that. But also, I think that as a small farm, we can't survive if we don't take advantage of technologies that are available to us today that our ancestors didn't have. You might not know this, but I have a line of lip balms called Stuart and Claire. What does that have to do with plants, you ask? Well, I make them with organic plant-based oils and butters, as well as golden beeswax. A few of the scents are inspired by cocktails, which, get this, rely on plants for their flavors take our best-selling Negroni lip balm. To mimic the scent of the botanicals that go into this drink, I make a balm with essential oils distilled from juniper, clove, sweet and bitter orange, among others. Plant Out Loud listeners can get 15% off all your orders from Stuart and Claire. Just go to stuartandclaire.com, that's Stuart with a W and Claire with an I, and use the code PLANTOUTLOUD at checkout. So working with Iris, she really changed the direction of your farm from one that was focused on the farmer's market to chefs and mostly chefs exclusively for a long time. And I know that there's been this long sort of symbiotic relationship the farm has had with chefs where you both inspire each other. We tell some of those stories in the book, but I'd love to talk a little bit about that That's that relationship you have with chefs and how and how they helped you innovate. 
Well, they certainly have. And we owe such a great deal to the chefs that really took us under the wing because they recognized we wanted to get it right. Not that we have it all figured out. You know, if, if the scale is a mile long, we have the first inch figured out, but um, they really kind of took us on a path. And one of the taglines that we have is, is that at every single stage of a plant's life, it offers something unique to the plate. I remember a particular situation where, well, if, if, if any of your listeners are gardeners, they know what a seed stalk is. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we have a lot of sun in June, May and June, and those plants are just growing so fast. And a radish has a short life anyway. And, you know, it can go from seed to fruition in 21 days. But in about day 23 or 24, the, so the goal of a plant is sustainability. And it's to produce a mature seed. Mm-hmm. That's its life cycle. And it, it's not done until it produces mature seed so that it can s- sustain. And so, you know, there was this beautiful field of radishes. We had pressure to try and get them moved. They weren't selling. It was a large field, large field for a small scale farm. I'm not talking about a thousand acre field of radishes here. I'm talking about mm-hmm. probably a, a two acre field, but they were beautiful. Right. And I had them on my mind. I had a chef visiting and we're not, you know, much like we do with every chef that comes. And we have about 600 visiting chefs a year with the exception of 2020. And we didn't have any because of COVID, but we would get in the fields and get on our knees and look at plants and taste them and, and learn from each other. And she was driving back and went across the Creek, across the wooden bridge. And, you know, there's my brother, Bob, and he's in the field plowing this field under of, and it was a beautiful field of white flowers. Mm. Well, the radish produces a, a white, dependent upon variety, yellow flower, and he was plowing them under. The chef saw this happening and just reacted. And before I even stopped the truck, jumping out of the passenger side, runs in front of my brother, flags him down, stops the tractor. And my brother's like, what in the world is wrong with this guy? Doesn't he understand I've got work to do? I've got to get this plowed under and get it replanted. Start again. And, you know, and so my brother came over and I and the chef and we're down on our knees and looking at the plant and he's tasting the flowers. And he's like, don't you realize that I can use this on the plate? And, you know, it was one of those moments where I think that in society in the United States, we've kind of sort of gotten this tunnel vision that a cucumber has to be a certain size and it has to be waxed two for a dollar sixty nine. And I think we're kind of overcoming that we're seeing with the ugly vegetables and misfits and different things and apples that have scabs on them are still okay. And Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with them. That's what we always took home was the grade outs that we knew that we couldn't take to market and we knew there was nothing wrong with them. That's what we always took home to eat. Right. So. Yeah. It's like the butcher cuts. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the chefs have opened our eyes at looking at plants in different ways. And of course, Chef Jamie Simpson uh, who's our chef here at the Culinary Vegetable Institute has really embraced that concept and taken a cue from chefs and done deep dives on these. And, you know, one of my favorite, favorite things is if you think about a Brussels sprout and any, if any of your listeners have either seen or grown a Brussels sprout, it takes eight, nine, 10 months. Okay. They're a long yep. season crop. And it's this enormous three or four foot tall plant with all this beautiful foliage or canopy mm-hmm. of leaves just to grow the tiny little Brussels sprouts to go right against the stalk. Well, why does the plant have all these leaves in the canopy? To provide an umbrella or a sunshade so that the Brussels sprouts don't sunburn. But Brussels sprouts are in the cruciferous family. Same as cabbage and broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. Why can't we eat that leaf? You know, we talk about 
you know, a crisis of 40% food waste in the United States. And it's a real number. It's, mm -hmm. it's true. And it hurts and expensive. And we have people that could consume this food, but we're wasting it. So, you know, Jamie did a great experiment with, you know, fermentation on the Brussels sprout leaves. Mm -hmm. And I would defy even the best collard green consumer. <laughs> and my grandparents were from the South and we were raised on collard greens and ham hock and cornbread and you i mean he prepares those and gives you a bowl of them and you would think you were eating a bowl of collard greens mm -hmm. they're loading vitamin c mm -hmm. yep and so now you're taking that plant and looking at it in a different perspective than what we've sort of been the status has been in the united states of looking at a plant it's supposed to be this size it's supposed to be perfectly round or a perfect shape or a certain state stage and that's what we look at the plant as and we've kind of just blown the lid off of that and said you know what we're going to look at this plant entirely different can you imagine okay you already have that vision of that cucumber that's the two for dollar 69 they're 10 inches long they're three inch diameter with the wax on them what about a, a cucumber that's one inch long the diameter of a number two pencil mm -hmm. and it has a bright yellow blossom the size of a 50 cent piece on the top of it yeah. And they're exquisite and tender and they could be used in a cocktail. They could be used. I mean, I always hate to start telling somebody how they can use it because now you've just limited it to my pea brain right, imagination. Right. I mean, <laughs> right, what right. can't you use that with? Yeah. You know, so. it's actually a really they're really good gardener snacks, too. If you grow your own yeah. cucumbers and it's basically right when the blossom opens before they're fertilized. Yes. Pick off a few. Um, yeah, they're that really nice good little like, snacks. gardener snacks. But um, the chef's garden grows the most exquisite version of it. And now you're not exclusively selling to chefs. You are selling to people at home. And this was a, a plan that was in the works for a really long time that perhaps was hastened by COVID-19. So I do want to make sure people know that. How is that going? You know, it's going good. Uh, it COVID definitely hastened it along. We had been kind of dragging our feet on it. My dad um, has been pushing this. He really has been passionate about, you know, chefs for the last 37 years have said the three most important things to them were flavor. The second most important was flavor. The third most important was flavor. We had a hypothesis that as we continue to search for ways to get the soils in balance, have healthy seeds, and create a perfect environment for them, that to do everything we could to, to milk the best flavor out of a plant naturally rather than chemically that the nutrient levels were coming with it. And my grandfather, my dad's father died at 49 of cancer. And my dad's always had in the back of his head that he wanted to find ways to be able to either prevent or help turn around cancer, but really on a broader scale, the health and well-being of, of the world. And what could we do to be able to grow a healthy plant to be able to create healthy people? And so he's really been on this quest and, you know, we build a laboratory on the farm. We've had a laboratory. The, the original laboratory was in a semi that you could, you know, everything's always about bigger. So a 40 foot semi was no longer efficient. Now they're all 60 foot. Right. So you could buy those 40 footers for about 500 bucks. And we had microscopes in there and all kinds of lab equipment in this 40 foot semi trailer. And that's where we worked out of. Yeah. And finally about, oh, I guess it's been four years ago, build out a full fledged laboratory we have three scientists on staff and we're testing nutrient nutrient density levels, the, the, the health of the soil, the biology in the soil, the microbiology, and really digging deep into soil, but the 
the nutrient nutrient densities of the plants and getting a better understanding of what we're doing and what we can do to affect the integrity of that plant and the nutritional levels. And we're seeing outstanding results from that. So, you know, that kind of ties into when we made that pivot, COVID pushed us along. And, you know, we want to not only just provide another box of vegetables, we want to provide life and substance and regeneration and sustainability through that box. And um, it's it's been very exciting to see some of the results. In some cases, we're seeing 300 to 600 times higher nutrient nutrient density levels than the USDA average. Mm-hmm. Um, Being, I'm, I'm looking at a result that the farm sent me with kale. And yes. It's like 500% more calcium, if I'm reading that correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for some of the varieties of kale that you're growing, I, I mean, mean that's just just off the charts. Massive, yeah. And, and what's what's alarming is, and this is common knowledge. You, any any of your listeners can Google this. The nutrient levels in fruits and vegetables have gone down by over fifty percent in the last fifty years, and they're going down at an increasing rate right now. And it's the way that we're farming them because everything is measured on tons per acre. Mm-hmm. Again. Kind of like what we talked about early on in the conversation, keep the cost as low as possible, produce as many tons per acre, and you stay in business. That model is not going to keep us sustainable or regenerative. It's a short-term gain and uh, with a with really, really serious long-term negative effects. So going back to 21% interest rates in a hailstorm, ramping up to 2020, a COVID that has really propelled this pivot and we knew where we had to go. It was, a, I mean, within 24 hours of getting an understanding of what, how this thing was going to go down and the restaurant, the restaurants were really in trouble. And so our lifeblood was too. We had to make this pivot. We felt like we could provide something of service because people were afraid. We were afraid to go to a grocery store and to be exposed to this. Mm-hmm. And we didn't understand it then. And I don't know how much we understand about it now, but it pro- we felt like we could provide something safe where there was somebody conscientious on this end, our team, growing the safest, healthiest products available and being able to ship them from our, the back door of our farm to the front door of your porch mm-hmm. or your apartment, wherever, anywhere in the United States. And so we felt like we were providing a service and it allowed us to somehow survive because single greatest asset on our farm is not greenhouses, it's not tractors, it's not land, it's people. Mm-hmm. And our team is amazing and we wanted to keep them busy and we did everything we could to keep our team here and productive and working and with a paycheck to keep them keep them and their families going. And so this pivot was a natural for us to be able to provide a healthy box to individuals. It's not something that when COVID goes away, we're gonna say, oh well, we're not gonna do home delivery. This is a this is a pivot and we'll be in this lane for the rest of our lives. Continue to learn. And especially now with your research starting to show some results, prove what you and your dad knew instinctually that there was so much tied to the health of the soil and the health of the soil made for healthier crop. And your dad very sadly passed away last year. I was really lucky to get to talk to him uh, several times. And I started to think of him a, a bit as the genius behind the curtain because he was so humble, but so such a visionary. And I know you always talked about him that way. Absolutely. And I, I, I feel privileged to have gotten to see that. And it, yeah, it seems like this direction, I mean, you're really living out this direction he wanted to go. And I know he told me every, every answer to a question just brings up 20 new questions. The fact that you're able to continue down yeah. that path 
I think he's very proud, even if, you know, I, what did he say? He, he wishes you eternal dissatisfaction. Yeah. Isn't that one of his? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one of those father-son talks. Yeah. <laughs> My brother and I and him at the picnic table out in front of the farm. And it was one of those father-son talks where he talked and we listened. And he says, boys, you just don't get it, do you? And we kind of looked at each other and looked at him. And he says, well, I wish you eternal dissatisfaction. And it kind of hurt our feelings. And we didn't we didn't react to it. We always stayed respectful because he commanded it and he deserved it. And uh, he was our father and we wanted to. But we did open that conversation back up again about a month later and have a conversation about it. But, you know, in many cases, he's no different than a lot of the great chefs that we've met over the last 37 years in that they put a plate of, bring a plate of food out to the dining room and the guest has had a couple of glasses of wine and they're enjoying the experience and they're like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest plate of food I've ever had. And, you know, if that chef rests on those laurels, there's a thousand chefs coming, young chefs behind him that are going to kick his butt and or hers. And, you know, they take the plate back to the kitchen and tear it apart. It was undercooked. It was overcooked. It had too much salt. It didn't have enough salt whatever something wasn't it wasn't placed right on the plate and it's it's that constant and if you ask any chef they'll say have you ever presented the perfect plate of food they'll all say no mm-hmm. because they know that there's more to do and my dad had another saying that you can be on the right set of tracks and get run over if you're not running moving fast enough <laughs> <laughs> and we weren't moving fast enough in this direction covid covid pushed us to get the get, fire light the fire and it mm-hmm. has and mm-hmm. We are so excited about the potential, the future, the opportunities to be able to really make a difference with the health and well-being of the plant, but also with people's lives, because Mm -hmm. we have to turn this around as society. It's not sustainable. The preservatives in this food, the way that we're farming chemically and synthetically, it's not sustainable. The health issues that many of us are dealing with today are going to get worse before they get better. And it becomes up to our generation and to your generation and the next generation to really be thoughtful about what we're consuming, who we're consuming it from. I, I think that the local thing is a little bit, I think it's a wonderful vision, but I don't think it goes far enough. Mm-hmm. If you can get something in your backyard and it's grown the right way, by all means do it. But I don't think that that should be the measuring. I think that we really have to look at how how we're farming, how we're taking care of the soil, how we're taking care of the the, the crops and how we're taking care of the people. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't take good care of our team, then those those are the future farmers. It's not me. My right. best days, you know, I, I've, I'm past my peak <laughs> and uh, I'm going to keep pushing and try and keep learning. But, you know, I'm going to be 60 in June. So I got less years ahead of me than I do behind me. Mm-hmm. But so many of our team members, they're the, they're yeah. the future farmers of yeah. America. So. Yeah, you've really cultivated a plant metaphor, I guess, but cultivated a wonderful team of growers and scientists and just people who seem to deeply love their work. So. Absolutely. And, you know, we counted up just for the heck of it, but the number of years of experience on the farm, and I'm sure that's changed somewhat in the last year. It's probably gone down some, unfortunately, but we had a thousand years of experience on the chef's garden. Yeah. Now, I'm not talking about agricultural experience at another farm that they brought here. I'm talking about the number of years of experience on the farm. And we have, wow. we have an amazing team of, of folks here that I'm honored to get to work with every day. And I'll tell you, this has been a battle. I mean, this last year has been a battle of survival on a small-scale family farm. We were considered an essential workers, um, and we never <laughs> stopped. But 
you know, it's, it's been a struggle to, to stay in it. I tell you, I wouldn't have wanted to go to battle with anybody, any other team than this team. We've, we've had some folks that have been in there with their sleeves rolled up and we see us on the downward slide of this mountain. I hope for all of us, for the entire world that we're, you know, we're hopeful that these vaccines are going to start and turn the worm, if you Mm -hmm. will, another Mm -hmm. plant metaphor, maybe, but uh, (laughs) um, so, you know, we're going to make it and we've got so much opportunity to do good with, you know, really focusing on the health and well-being of that plant, which is going to equate to the health and well-being of, of the individuals. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. There's a lot to be looking forward to. So where can people find you online if they don't know already? Well, uh, Farmer Jones Farm. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Chef's Garden is the mother company. We're going to, we're rooting for, we're the biggest cheerleaders of the chefs out there. And we know they're going to come back. We know some of them aren't, but those chefs that are at a restaurant that closes are going to land on their feet and they're, you know, and there are, it's happening now. We're seeing chefs that are relocating and moving their families. And it's just a post from a guy that they sold their house in Orlando and they've relocated into Pennsylvania. And so it's, it's happening. And, you know, so we're excited about the restaurants returning and we're committed to that restaurant connection (laughs) for the rest of our lives. But, but we're excited that COVID has allowed this opportunity for a path to be able to get the product to home users that want to have great ingredients at home. One of, and I'm sure you read this before, but really interesting quote from William Albrecht. He noted the following in his 1948 publication, Our Teeth and Our Soils. It's an interesting title, but better nutrition is leading us to think less about medicine as cures and less about fighting microbes with drugs. In a more positive way, it's helping us to think more about helping the body defend itself by being well-fed and therefore healthy. I mean, it's if you think about it, it's Western culture versus Eastern culture. Western culture wants to fix it after you've got the problem. Mm-hmm. Always, a, always a medicine to fix this, fix that. Eastern culture is get the body and balance and defend against the disease in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, how do we do that? By having right. healthy food to consume. Right. So this was in 1948. I know. And it's, it's so more relevant today than it was in 48. I know. It's so, it's so prescient. I, I did read that actually. And it's also, I mean, it's another, it's like how, how we're like plants. When plants are healthier by having healthier soils, they are more resilient and able to, to defend themselves against various pests. Exactly. So, exactly. yeah, it's like if we make the plants healthier, we in turn make ourselves healthier. Um, and that's, I mean, that's so much about what this podcast is all about is that relationship we have with plants and how to respect them, treat them well. And by treating them well, we treat ourselves well. That's um, a perfect finish. Yeah. Uh, you said it in a nutshell. <laughs> Thank you so much. I just loved catching back up with Farmer for this episode. One thing we didn't discuss is how they actually make their soils healthier at the farm. We go into this in more detail in the Chef's Garden book, but I will tell you that they have an extensive system of cover cropping. This means that during some seasons, they leave parts of their land to rest. They plant cover crops, which can include grasses and legumes, and these feed the soil nutrients slowly over time. They also sometimes add chopped up cover crops as mulch. In your home garden, you can try putting one of your beds under cover crops for a season and see what happens. You can find cover cropping mixes from seed purveyors like johnnyseeds.com. If you're not up for cover cropping, one thing I've learned from the most successful organic gardeners I know is to always, always, always use compost in your garden. 
You can make compost with kitchen scraps or purchase it, but using compost will feed your plants slowly over time and continuously build the soil. I used to mix compost into my soil, but I've heard from gardeners who simply put it on top in the fall, much like mulch, and let that sink in. I didn't get to do that in time for the fall, but I did do it in early spring this year. I'll let you know how it goes. I'd love to hear what you're doing in your garden to keep your plants healthy. DM me at plant.outloud on Instagram. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Leave a review or send me a DM with your plant questions on Instagram at plant.outloud. Even better, tell a friend about this episode. Let's keep growing, friends.